Hey, this is Barbara Corker, and you are now tuned in to Business Unusual. And everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. This episode is presented by AT&T Business. Hey, we all know Gary V as a phenomenal entrepreneur. He's a walking, talking example of what it's like to be so successful in building your own business. He's adored. Today, we're going to get personal. We're going to find out who Gary is, really, as a son, a father, and a great boss. Listen to the way this guy thinks. You're about to learn a lot. So nice to see you, Gary. You're looking your usual spiffy self with the <laughs> hat on your head backwards. You haven't shaved, shaved in like weeks, I guess. Days. This is a days shirt on. Yep. For those who can see this guy, this guy has not dressed up for me. Not once. And his excuse he just gave me off the record was nobody's at the office right now. So how are you finding that? Are you finding your people work as hard and are as motivated without seeing your face every day? Yeah, I think people are, are self-motivated for the most part in, in reality. People have their internal compasses and, you know, a lot, of, you know, we're obviously in Manhattan and so we have a very young organization. So people have heavy commutes because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like a lot of people, you know, like anything in life, there's been a lot of people who've really enjoyed this uh, remote reality. Other people have struggled with it and everything in between we're actually in this nice zone now. We have about a thousand people in the in New York offices, maybe less. Uh, and we're starting to see a little bit of an influx of people coming in. So we're in this fun spot where I think people are choosing what works for them. Um, and it might and it might be a preview for the future. But yeah, I feel I feel productivity is there. Um, as a matter of fact, somewhere about a year into COVID, I was like, wait a minute. People are actually more productive. We started hearing from employees that they were concerned, you know, in a normal work environment, walking over to somebody's office, bullshitting, you know, at the water cooler, going for lunch, probably for an hour longer than you needed to. A lot of that was eliminated with Zoom after Zoom after Zoom after Zoom. And so I think, you know, people are more self-aware than ever. People talk more about, you know, balance and mental health than what you and I grew up with. And you know, we as an organization are trying to find our balance between being productive and building a business. Um, and, but more importantly, finding something that's palpable at scale and, and creating individuality opportunities so that we can create retention and, and a good environment. So yeah, fun challenges being a CEO during these times. Yeah, it's been totally different. But let me ask you, you keep referencing as a spot What's your plan? You take, you're taking the spot away after a few months and everybody's going to start coming in or you're going to leave it up to the employee? I'm curious what your own intent on that is. You know, we're strategizing a, a real estate play. Like, you know, we, we really had some fortunate timing. We, our headquarters is in Hudson Yards mm -hmm. in Manhattan, a new big project. Nice of, yep. Mm -hmm. So we had a floor and a half um, in a very fancy schmancy building with L'Oreal and Coach and these companies. And we started building out a ton of space in Long Island City uh -huh. because we have a production facility there and a bunch of offices there. And we actually decided to give up the half floor on 24 uh, and we subleased it right before COVID. Wow, lucky, lucky. 
And then, and then since COVID, you know, over this last two years, we've gained an enormous amount of headcount. So we have a little bit of like a fun business challenge in that we don't have the real estate for everybody coming in every day if we did that tomorrow. And nor do we think that that's actually going to be our reality. So the answer to your question is we're still pondering some different strategies. Um, but remote work is, is here. It's here. Oh, definitely. Mm. Uh, I've noticed that in the city, the big banks are calling their people back. The uh, big law firms have called their people back, usually five days a week. And they usually lead, the, lead that kind of a, a business decision. But I found that any other business that I've heard of, any business owners that I know are not calling their people back and don't, don't plan to on a full-time basis. So I was just curious what you were doing. So it sounds like it's, you haven't really fully decided it yet, right? No, I think um, I'm not. I think your people might decide it for you, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things, like if you ask the people, they would uh, ask for faster horses. You know, that, that old saying, I, I do think there's a responsibility of a leader to make some decisions. I think it's like parenting. I think parents tend to go awry when they let their kids make all the decisions. I think it's a balance. I think it's, I think, I think I need to listen and make that a heavy consideration yeah. point. Yep. Um, but, uh, but I definitely think we'll have to make some decisions, but I'm, I'm incredibly uh, comfortable in, in counterpunching the reality more than um, just having some sort of ideology. So it's a wait and see approach at this point. I feel like everybody knows the story about growing up uh, with your relatives in the apartment in Queens with eight people. My question about that is, what was that experience really like for you? And did that have a lot to do with who you became? Like, what did you take out of that? Was it a bad memory? No, was it a good memory? It was a great yeah. memory. I mean, I think when I think about three to seven, four to seven is when I really, I think I remember more. From four to seven, two years in Queens, two, two years in, uh, in Dover, New Jersey, before we moved to Edison, where I kind of really speak about growing up, um, they're incredibly joyous times. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm four to seven. So I have a 24 to 27 year old mother who was destined to become one of the great mothers of all time. Mm -hmm. um, and she loved me more than anything. And she instilled an incredible amount of happiness and confidence and I'm just incredibly grateful. I, I was so well-parented. I just really was. And so I heard somebody say something the other day that really caught me. He, in an interview, he said um, that he had the great luxury. I always said, I always say I have the great luxury of having adversity in my childhood, which created my ambitions and tenacities and gratitude. He, he tweaked it a little bit. He, he said that he uh, was so happy with little. And that was what has allowed him to have perspective forever. And I think, mm. I think that's, when you ask that question, that's where my mind went. Um, for all of what the challenges look like, I think there's a lot of immigrants who are listening right now, or people that grew up with, you know, not immigrants that grew up with very little, but grew up happy. It wasn't very little, but there was abuse or anger or darkness in the family. It was very little, but there was enormous joy so very little and enormous joy set the foundation to who I am today, right? It's less about, yes. I didn't have anything. I need to go get something. It's more, 
oh, I don't need anything to be happy. Mm-hmm. So it's a little tweak on what we normally think, right? I don't have much. I'm going to go get something. I'll show the world. I'm going to get something. For me, I'm starting to realize, oh, no, it was, oh, I don't need anything to be happy. Thus, I don't need to be crippled by achievement. I can just enjoy my natural process. Oh, layer some self-awareness on that. And I realized I was actually an entrepreneur incredibly young and layer some conviction on that. For some unknown reason, by fourth grade, I was capable to hear other parents, friends' parents, and teachers tell me, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're bad, this is bad, you've got to get better. And my brain said, no, you're wrong. I know who I am. I'm going to be a businessman. And that's crazy in hindsight. Yes, it is. To to think about it, because it was 1985. Entrepreneurship wasn't in pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, But I just gravitated so naturally to lemonade stands and baseball cards and shoveling snow and washing cars. And I just, you know, I feel like when I look at athletes and music entertainers or actors who have gone on from childhood to professional success, I've always gravitated towards that. I always understood that. I always associated with that. I remember Monica Seles, the tennis player, Martina Hingis, or Michael Jackson, because I knew he was six, or whatever it was, I always, I, I think entrepreneurship is much closer to what we know the stories of Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or mm-hmm. Beyonce, where like at five, six, seven, eight, you just know. And I feel like I was that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'm listening to you and I'm identifying with everything you're saying. Uh, because I had the identical background. And I distinctly remember when I quit my job as a waitress to start my real estate company, I was 23. Every time I was scared to leap off a mountain, I would think, well, I was happy as a waitress. I could always get that job back. And what a freedom that gave you. You know, I didn't have to worry about what I was losing. I'm like, hey, I was happy then. I could be happy poor. Maybe I'll be happy rich. And frankly, I find with a lot of money, uh, happiness gets more complicated myself. And I'll maybe talk to you about that at another time. But I definitely have to ask you, you're the perfect walking, talking example of what everybody says is a natural born entrepreneur. And you profess that. Do you think that's really true? You have to be a natural born entrepreneur and those are the big successes or can you be nurtured to it or can you learn it when you're older? All of the above. All of the above. Even learning it when you're older. See, that's the part I'm not sure I buy in on, but tell me your thoughts on that. Well, I think it all depends on what you define success. And I'm probably more like you, you know, this is where nuances and context matters. Building a business. Can you start out at 35, learn to be an entrepreneur if you haven't been before and have a success? Or is that something that you have to learn earlier? It depends on what we define success, right? So I think you're, I I understand what you're saying and here's my take on it. You're uh, an executive in a company that's, let's just do a huge range. Let's say you are 41 and you make 73,000 a year. Let's say you're 41 and you make 390 a year. Let's just play those two ranges. Do I believe, especially now with the internet, unlike what you know our parents or our great grandparents or even us at some level grew up with, um, do I believe that that person today can use YouTube, Shopify, TikTok, this mm. emerging NFT world and hone their 
like put in the work a little bit to be an entrepreneur to then replicate their salary, I think, yes. I think there are a lot of more people that can do that. To your point, I, if I today at 40, I turned 46 this Sunday. If I at 46 start playing tennis for two hours a day for the next four years, do I think I can be much stronger at tennis? I do. I think I can win pickup tennis matches that I couldn't today. Do I think that I can beat a semi pro? <laughs> no shot. My so, money would be on the pro, just so you know. Correct. So I think your point is well taken. I, at 46, have been, was born with it and have been practicing entrepreneurship now for 40 years, actually. No bullshit. Mm-hmm. Am I going to dramatically outpace success wise somebody that I just described at 41 just starting? Of mm-hmm. course. But I think what's interesting there is people evolve. Uh, You know, candor for me, great as Gary Vee in podcasts, weakness for 25 years as an operator. Mm -hmm. I does not talk about not coming natural to me over the last three years have evolved dramatically. Am I anywhere in the ballpark of somebody who grew up naturally great at candor? Not even in their zip code. (laughs) I eight years ago, was out of shape, not a muscle in my body. Working out and eating well was the least natural thing to me. Over the last eight years, I've built a real consistent framework that has put me in a, and to this day, even though I've been working out consistently for eight years, every morning, this morning, hated it, hated it. So what I've learned about some things as I've gotten older is it's not a zero sum game, but to your point, do I think that even though I know what Vera Wang's story is, even though I know Colonel Sanders' story, even though I know, I just believe that they were actually entrepreneurs and hadn't tapped into it yet. Mm. I think to your point, people are born with entrepreneurship in different ranges and then you can maximize it based on how many reps you put in and there's a lot of scales in between. Okay, let me ask you specifically uh, about, because I have a theory and I want to know if, if you have felt the same way all along. Uh, when I was a kid, I was such a terrible student as were you, all right? And that constant negative feedback from the classroom uh, motivated me to be quiet initially and then to get even as an adult. It was almost mm-hmm. anger I had to work through and I used the business I built as my vehicle to prove to the world, like once and for all, I am not stupid, you got me wrong. Mm-hmm. You were getting your D's and F's in school as I was, uh, what went on inside you? You kind of positioned it a few minutes ago as a positive, like you knew you were an entrepreneur and you knew they were wrong. You knew you were right. I did not have that confidence. I had to learn it as a 20 something year old young businesswoman, right? How did you, uh, how much do you think that has to do with your success? The rough start as what would not be considered a successful child in the first environment where children are very much measured. How did that? It's it's massive. And I know you're very right on these, but I think it's a little tweak for me on that one. Mm -hmm. So yes, I absolutely have chip on shoulder. I'll show you. I think everybody has some level of that. Yeah. However, as I've gotten older, something has become more apparent to me, which is the following. There are two core things before I was the age of 10 that were positive reinforcements for me. Mm -hmm. My mother in the way I behaved around my kindness and empathy. Mm. Boy skids knee, 
outside, 12 kids, this was the 80s, you know, and you were obviously, you, you know what I'm about to say. Kids used to be outside in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know. Uh, so, you know, six moms hanging around, 7 p.m. in the summer, 30 kids running around, boy trips, not me, other boy trips, skins his knee, I stop, run over, are you okay? My mm -hmm. mom comes over or later at night and makes it out to be a very big deal. Yes. I, Gary, that was, you know, she would, I was rushing. Gianna, she would say, that, like, she would tell me how big, even right now I'm getting a little emotional, how, yeah, big, of a, how big of a deal that was. You're it such a sweet, a deal. you have a golden heart. You're such a good mm -hmm. boy. You're a golden. So I would get this positive reinforcement for being kind, okay? Mm -hmm. Then, I, who do you even know? Talk about truly in you. Lemonade stand, garage sales, uh, shoveling snow, like the market, the business world, the market. Ding dong, would you like me to shovel your snow? No, are you sure, ma'am? Okay, kid, do it, here's five <laughs> bucks. You know, that kind of thing? Yes, yes. And so I was getting told that I was good, you know, come home 30 mm -hmm. bucks. 30 bucks when you're nine for my immigrant family is like a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, you're so, you got it, you got it, kid, you got it. You know, the old country hustle, you've got, and so, those are the two places that I'm getting affirmation. In school, I'm getting none, none. In sports, I had it up to about fourth grade because I have good hand-eye coordination, but around fourth grade is when size and speed and athleticism takes over and it started to go away. So I think I am today fully a byproduct of the two places where I got affirmation. So it was less, it was more, I'm just gonna build on what's positive more so than I'm gonna stick it to what was telling me I was negative. I have a little bit of that, but I would call it 85%, I'm just gonna build the biggest building in town over here where I'm getting a lot of love and 15% like, hey, you fuckers over there, I'll show you. And so I think that's my balance. Mm -hmm. You know, uh... I think it's so good for moms who have kids that aren't so swift at school, classroom work, to hear that message. Because I, I echo it exactly without my mom telling me I was a genius when everybody was telling me I was stupid. And without her telling me you have got a great imagination and, and you know, complimenting me on my chalk games on the sidewalk and how nice I was to the other kids and how I played fair. I mean, all you really need is one great person in your court. And when you get your mom, man, what, a, what an asset to overcome any, anything. Does it strike you as shocking when you meet entrepreneurs, as I'm sure you do, that are hugely successful and had never had anyone love them as a kid? That, you know, they came out of nothing, had no one loved them and somehow managed to make a great life for themselves. That to me, I, my hat's off. I think I could have never done that. I could never have done that without the love. What do you think I, about that? How does that happen? Because I think entrepreneurship success comes in seesaws. I think they're the two extremes. Mm. I think it's over love or, ma or massive over love or massive under love. I actually, when I see it, I understand it. I understand. My father is that. You know, with no disrespect to my grandmother, um, my dad lost his, my dad was born in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Talk about a bad place. I don't think Americans, who, anybody who's listening globally right now, I'm telling you, unless you have family heritage from the Soviet Union from 1918 to 1990, you have no idea. Barbara, I don't know if you know this. Most, most people don't know this. Communist Russia 
you were not allowed to leave the country ever. Mm. I, I don't did think, not know that actually. Right. So unlike, you know, you know how even, Cuba, even for the affluent families, they were not allowed to nobody, world travel. There were no nobody. affluent foundry, families. Wow. Mm. There, the, only the people in the government who were dictating the game. There, there, nobody left the country. Mm. It was jail. You know, we hear about these bad places. We demonize places, mm. right? They weren't allowed to leave. Mm. Okay. It's not like China. It's not like, you know, it's not like Venezuela. You couldn't leave. So my dad was born in jail, in essence. His father dies at 15. And my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago. I've known her my whole life. She was, I have a lot of empathy for her because I actually knew my great-grandmother, the mother that parented her. But the reality is my grandmother was incredibly insecure, wildly cynical, desperately negative. My father was underloved in my opinion. It, let me rephrase. He was very loved in a very twisted, old school, fucked mm. up way. Mm. And my father came to this country at a hundred bucks and built a, and became a very successful businessman. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not foreign at all. I watched it in front of my eyes. Mm. I just also know that our version is so much more fortunate. When you are driven to become a successful entrepreneur, on the framework of darkness and I'll stick it to everybody and all those feelings, it catches up to you. Mm. And, and, and it takes Which regard, how does that play out, do you think? Well, I think, you know, I think the big thing that I'm spending so much time on is trying to reframe a conversation around business that the soft skills are hard, that, that can we once and for all, please, Jesus Christ already, for all, understand that money does not bring happy. And Barbara, you and I are incredibly fortunate and we've worked for our fortunate. We know so many people that have so much money that are so unhappy. So miserable, yeah. I know yeah, a lot of very poor people who are very happy. Yeah, and I know poor people that are miserable and I know poor people that are happy and poor, rich people that are happy and rich people that are miserable. This notion, and this notion that like, well, I'd rather cry in my Ferrari than. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I, agree with that. Of course not. I, you know, so what I mean by that is. No, I mean I agree with the Ferrari. I want to get one. Fair enough. I, I, I believe in the mindset of. Ultimately, everybody wants to not have anxiety, not feel down, mm. wants to enjoy their day, wants to have bliss and joy and content, and I think when you use money to hide your actual feelings, it becomes a short-term mm. mm -hmm. game. And, and that's what I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. Let's take a short break to talk about a company I love. Now let's get back to the show. What do you do as a more affluent dad raising kids with a totally different background to make sure they're not spoiled, rotten brats, which so many kids are of affluence. I mean, you could get it in any economic level, but uh, I just see so many kids living in New York City. It's like, oh God, you know, they don't have an appreciation for anything. How do you avoid not getting a cold hearted kid that takes everything for granted when they pretty much had what they needed in life from the get go? Oof. Um, so first of all, 
Or should I interview your kids? I'll bring them on. <laughs> First of all, yeah. you know, you can't fake environment. Mm. You know, when I was in my 30s and I kind of knew that I would have success, um, I paid attention to this subject and I watched people in their 40s and 50s with children, business associates. And it was very clear to me that the people that really cared about this issue, like I do, mm -hmm. would try to do things like send their kid to Africa for a, a week or a month or this, that, the other thing. And I just remembered being very in tune with you can't fake environment mm -hmm. that sure you could i'm on the board of pencils of promise so sure we could send kids to guatemala or laos or ghana to build a house for a week and it would give incredible context and perspective and it's incredibly important to do but it would be it would be wildly naive to think that that was going to set them straight or mm. make that you know it was a short-term uh data point mm -hmm. so i think first of all anybody who's crippled by this, and a lot of people are, because you come, many people come from less, have, and then they watch their kid and they're like, ugh, they're frustrated. I think first you have to be acceptant to that truth. It's not your, you know, it, it's not your fault. It's not your kid's fault. It is the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing you have to do, my personal point of view, is what my mom did and what other great parents do, which is you decide what you put on a pedestal. Mm. So for example, point. love it. Right. So I spend a lot of time watching my contemporary parents of my kids and some of them spend the parent, these parents spend most of their time talking about wealth. Oh, Johnny got a private plane. Oh, Sally has a driver. Oh, Ricky's got the new burka bag, right? That is what's coming out of their mouth. Mm. I believe that your children are absorbing what you decide to put on a pedestal. And if you decide to talk about humanity, kindness, work ethic, accountability, gratitude, like if these are the things you talk about, if these are the things that you speak to, I have been very motivated by wildly wealthy kids that I've met also, not just looking at parents, 20, 30 year olds over the last decade, many of which, sure, they don't have the hunger, listen, they're not going to beat you and me in a street fight. Mm -hmm. right, Babs? They're not going to beat us. They're just not. Um, they're just not. They can't out dirt us. You and I, we have a level of humility and tenacity and ability to like get in the dirt that it's very hard for a Park Avenue kid to ever get to because they don't even understand its existence or context, right? However, they're incredibly gracious, humble, kind hardworking, affluent children running around the world and who understate their parents, who understate their, they have confidence and kindness in their soul. And that's all you try to achieve to do as a parent. Do you think uh, from the kid's perspective, and then I'll leave the subject because I didn't yep. mean to go down this No worries, no worries. But I find it so fascinating and especially your input on it. My gosh, you have clarity when you speak that I adore, um, but do you think from your kid's perspective uh, that they intrinsically have an undermining of themselves uh, based on the fact that they had a head start? However that head start they perceive it to be, do you think my, that my, my roads my, foundation yeah, confidence yeah. in the get-go? I think for me, in the way my DNA worked, I would have in a big way. It's why I'm incredibly grateful that I wasn't born that way. Yes. My brother, AJ, who's 11 years younger than me, 
mm-hmm. who's you know started VaynerMedia with me right out of school, speaks calmly and comfortably about starting at third base. Mm-hmm. And I admire it. Mm. I'm, I respect it. And so I, now maybe for me it would be challenging because I know what I've already done and how I've done it. Maybe if I was born into that, you know, I think, it's, I think there are people that are like that and I think others aren't. And then you have people who start at third base and spend their life giving away their parents' money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have other people that completely distance themselves from it and go into completely left field stuff. You have others that embrace it and, and go into the family business. And then you have two versions of that, the Shlemiel, who's just getting by because their last name. And then you have people that come in and look at the hill and say, they're gonna climb it. Look, in my family, us Russian immigrants, what my dad accomplished by owning a liquor store was he made it. He was a big deal in this small and Russian I'd be, community. I'd be curious what his response was when you took that business from $3 million to $60 million, uh, and you were so young at the time, I think. What was his response to that? What did he say? Was you know, he, he, he yeah. I started working in the store when I was 14. So by the time I was 22 and took, quote unquote, over the day-to-day operations of the business, I was young, such- that's very, very young, Gary. I just I want to remind you. <laughs> yes. He, he, I was such a known entity to him. Mm. You know, probably by 16, he knew I quote unquote had it. By 20, 19, I was very, I mean, I was incredibly active in business decisions when I was in college. And so he knew who I was. I do think the growth staggered him mainly because I built it on the back of launching a website which had, that the internet hadn't existed yet. Yes. So the, you know, for my dad, three, and it was really closer to four, 3.8, 4.2 million that year before I took over, the idea from going from four to 10 would have required opening a second store. Mm-hmm. So for him to watch it happen within the same store through this new invention called the internet, I would call it similar to what a lot of people are walking through right now with the blockchain and NFTs. Right, yes. you've got these NFT numbers that we're all hearing, and everyone's like, "What?" And it's because nobody's comfortable yet with the blockchain. They don't understand digital ownership. So, and he was incredibly proud. My father and I competed a lot. We butted heads. We had very different styles. He was, all, you know, now I have incredible compassion for my father. When I was 22 and came into the business, my dad was 44 years old. Wow, Barbara, yeah. he was 44, and I basically asked my dad not directly, but in my actions and innuendos, hey, pops, let me do this. You go over there, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm 45, turning 46 this week. The thought that that my daughter's son would be like, yeah, we're going to need you to wrap it up and go chill over there. You know, I don't want to be around when they're asking, that's for sure. (laughs) And so, and my dad is incredibly competitive, incredibly proud, uh, accomplished and tenacious, work ethic through the yang. And so, you know, I, I, I actually admire my father tremendously for having the humility, which most parents don't have in a family business to recognize, hey, this kid's actually really got it. I'm going to have to give him the ball. Hey, let me tell you something. I don't think that would have been hard for him to recognize. I'll have to differ with you on that. I could picture you at that age. Like, I think I would run out of the store and run away from you. (laughs) I don't, you, to your point. Yeah, to your point, it wasn't hard for him to know that I had it. It was hard 
for him to have the humility to really actually have me run it. Mm. Got it? He knew I had it. I actually think there's a lot of parents right now, I hope this helps some people. I think family business talk is really interesting. I think there's a mother and father listening right now who have an 18 to 30 year old child in the business and they know the kid's capable, Mm. but they're not ready to have their own ego, their own self-worth be compromised by letting the child shine. And Mm. I'm incredibly blessed by what my father did for me by giving mm. me giving me the lead mm. you mentioned your mother earlier is that where your concept in your new book 12 and a half uh, originated about your theory of kind management and would you mind telling me explain to me what you mean by that but did that come from your mom 100% this book is a very subtle but not so subtle if people pay attention to me tribute to my mother. My mother my mother and I share a lot of DNA, so it comes natural to me to understand her. Um, she is, I always said my dad was the barker and my mom was the biter. <laughs> but you wouldn't know it because my mom never really bit. Mm. But she would bite once every two years. <laughs> and the other, you know, 750 days were so remarkably pleasant. It would be like a dog that is the cutest dog on earth, the (laughs) sweetest dog on earth, the cuddliest dog on earth. You just couldn't get enough of it. Kennel club, walking in the park, the whole nine, the best, cutest dog of all time. And then once a year would literally bite your fucking hand off. And what would trigger that? I can so picture it that way. My mom didn't take kindly to disrespect. So if my sister and I, because my brother was 11 years younger than me, so I saw this less, but, and he really didn't have, but I was already cut. But if my sister and I even pondered innuendo, and my sister did it more than me, I would get punished for bad grades. Mm -hmm. My sister would get punished for sass. Mm -hmm. And my mom was just incredibly good at building what I, you know, I call VaynerMedia the honey empire, right? We're going to win with honey over vinegar, but let there be no confusion. This is not, you know, charity. This is an empire. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to talk about in 12 and a half, which is like, look, these are the emotional ingredients. We call them soft skills. I, I debate that they are the hard skills of business. Um, I understand that people think kindness is like, I, I mean, who the hell talks about kindness at work? Mm-hmm. I get it. I understand. Let A, let there be no confusion. I will kill all of you. I'm trying to beat every, I'm trying to beat everybody. You sound like a chip off your old mother's block, I'd That's, say. I, I am. I want to beat everybody. You don't look like such a cute puppy dog and all that other stuff you said though. That's right. I, I genuinely want to win. I want to be the best. I want to build something meaningful, a legacy. I want to be the greatest entrepreneur of all time. That is literally how I feel. And you, you're totally convinced that those 12 traits, well, 12 13, and a half traits 13. Uh, are essential. And you carefully selected those as a formula for entrepreneurial success. What yes. about the half trait? I, I actually, when I read the book, Jack, I was laughing. I'm like, 12 and a half, this guy's old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it was important for me to be vulnerable because I know that gratitude doesn't come natural to people. I know empathy does not come natural to people. I know, you know, uh, Uh, accountability definitely doesn't come natural to people. And so I said, you know, 
when I was writing these things down, I said, you know, let me talk about something that I become very aware is essential to success. And I actually stink at it. It's been my limiter. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you stink at. I just can't wait to hear it. Candor. I'm incredibly candorous in interviews, on stage, on television, on the internet. I'm unstoppable with my candor there, but that's because I'm talking to the world. When I talk to Sarah or Janasa or Rick or Ryan or Sally or Stevie one-on-one, it was very hard for me my whole life because I thought that I could get the outcome by not deploying negativity. I thought that I could motivate them optimistically, paint a picture, over coddle, take on more to help. Like just did all Mm. these entitlement things. Mm. Without using criticism. I mean, it's something, uh, it's a big difference between uh, criticizing someone for a job that's off than being negative. You know, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't have it down. Barbara, I didn't have it down. I think- You score yourself a half only on that one. Yeah, and I'm really proud to be at a half. I would say even five years ago, I was a zero. Mm -hmm. Like from a zero to 100, I was at 12%. I would say today I'm at 65%. Wow. And so I'm proud of that. And by the way, Mm -hmm. this is very real now. The last three years of my business life, because I've introduced kind candor, and it was the word kind that got me. I I tricked myself. I Mm. started becoming very conscious. It used to be subconscious. Mm. I got very conscious in the last half decade of like, fuck, this candor thing screwing me up. Mm. You know, why would anybody, I I remember this was, this this is actually interesting. I hope this helps somebody. And make sure you tell me how the people responded to it when you had this change of water, tides, whatever. I, I, I had this moment three to four or five years ago saying, you know, I'm incredibly not motivated by money by comparison to my contemporaries. I'm obsessed with my reputation. I love my legacy. I adore people. It comes so natural to me. Why? This was it. This was a very simple question. Why are there people that have worked for me that don't like me? Mm -hmm. And it bothered me to no end. Mm -hmm. And I finally chipped away at it like therapy with myself and said, son of a bitch, here's why. Because when I'm telling Laura or Malcolm, hey, everything's great. Hey, great job. I would check in with them and be like, hey, you know, like you could do a little bit of a better, but it was so pussy footing, right? Mm-hmm. Around it, you know, when I would do all of that. And they didn't trust you. Correct. Ultimately, what happened was my number one job as a leader is to eliminate fear. And I do it so well mm-hmm. in so many ways, which is why we have a remarkable culture. But what happened was because people over time realized that people were stunned when they were getting fired, Mm. people started becoming scared because they didn't know Uh, where they stood with me. Mm -hmm. And that started to create this 80% instead of 100%. And I had to be accountable. Like the boogeyman in the closet jumping out last minute. I don't um, like you just hearing that. I'm not sure I'm ever going to like you again, honestly. I respect that. I respect that. That was, and I'm never working for you, by the way. Go ahead. I respect that. It was my incredible flaw as a leader over the last 25 years. And the answer to your question is, because I have a lot of continuity in my company, emphatic happiness. People mm-hmm. are so happy that this has happened. Happy mm-hmm. would be the word I would use. Mm-hmm. Executive by executive over the last 36 Six months, whether very directly or slightly in passing, 
have all acknowledged it. So all what do you do? You go into an executive and you say, hey, let me tell you what I don't like about the job you're doing. You're that direct now? No, I, I, I just have, I don't have that in me, but it's, but it's like, hey, Sally, as you know, <laughs> now I've stood it up so much. Hey, Sally, as you know, I'm on my journey with candor. So I'd like to sit down with you and give you some kind candor. Your insecurities are making your team hate you. Mm. That is not a sentence that I was able to deliver before. But a great go- beginning, a great soft landing on that one, if you don't mind my saying. Powerful and soft. Thank you. And anyway. candid. And, and, this <laughs> is, and, and this is what I want my next 40 years of work to be. Uh, as a side thing, because I'm going to do a million other things. I got to figure this out because I think I've got something that can really be impactful for a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Well, I believe- it, is. it already is, Gary. I mean, you talk about and address it so much between the eyes in your new book. I mean, of course, you're making an impact with this already. You could probably go on to your next subject, honestly. You've done such a good job at communicating it. I think the job is over. You've changed yourself. You've communicated to the world. You're persuasive in your argument for it. My gosh, surely you must go on to another problem that you have. <laughs> listen, listen, I'm very, I'm very flattered by that. I, Barbara, listen, you are who you are and everybody listening knows who that is. You know how much has changed in society, how much has changed in business, the options. Barbara, how about this one? How about the fact that you and I did the entrepreneurial thing, but like even people that were half as entrepreneurial as us in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, they would have gotten a job. None of those people are getting a job in 2025. Absolutely, you're right. They're, they're gonna sell on TikTok, they're gonna sell on Shopify, they're gonna sell on Instagram, they're gonna sell an NFT. I don't know what businesses think is gonna happen, but let me give them the preview right now. Unless you are listening very carefully to what I'm saying and really get it down, nobody's gonna fucking come to work for you. Mm-hmm. Unless you can create that culture within the workplace. Correct. Sure you've given great, but, but, but people have so many goddamn options. Mm-hmm. It's not good. It's not like you have to be kind of good. I love how I listen to people say things like these millennials, they, they don't want to come and work for 45 K. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I and, and I, and I say to my friends, I'm like, I don't blame them. <laughs> I go, yeah, that's exactly right. I go, John, let me, I did the other day, John, let me get this right. You're shitting on Gen Z and millennials right now because you have a selfish want for them to come in and you want to pay them 45K a year and you're saying that they're bad? They're making 90K a year in brand deals on TikTok just dancing, just making jokes. The hell are you doing for them? Gary, is there anything you're afraid of? I just can't even picture that. Truly, really afraid of where you'd say, oh my God, if that happened. I'm incredibly concerned about the death of my parents or children, like crippled mm. or a family, anybody, everybody. Like I'm incredibly, I'm, I am so at peace and content and have been when I had nothing back to the, you really got to a good point there. And, and now when I have plenty, um, I just want everybody that I love to be alive. Mm. I'm a really simple dude at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I thought it was your outfit. I believe you. <laughs> You're a sweetheart. And thank you so much for all the time you spent. Huh? Thank you. I, I, put me on the top of your list of the Adoration Club, will you? Thank you. I, I love you. That. Really, I love you back. Hey, if you've enjoyed listening to Gary, go check out Gary on any social media platform. He's easy to find. And of course, do yourself a favor and buy a copy of his book, 12 and a half.
And that's all we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success. Search and follow Business Unusual on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.